Hello and bienvenido San Antonio. Welcome to the Alamo Hour, discussing the people, places, and passion that make our city. My name is Justin Hill, a local attorney, a proud San Antonian, and keeper of chickens and bees. On the Alamo Hour, you'll get to hear from the people that make San Antonio great and unique and the best kept secret in Texas. We're glad that you're here. All right, welcome to the Alamo Hour. Today's guest is our first repeat guest. Uh, you may remember he had a giggle fit last time and said that he met uh, Bashar al-Assad on a dating website, Dr. David Lesh from Trinity University. Thank you for being here. I can't talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, so before this, I said I was going to ask him things because lately in our friendship, he has become very self-important in telling us things he can and cannot discuss in public settings. I can't talk about that either. Yeah, I know. So I'm going to be a great guest. I can't so, talk about anything. Why so the hell most, do you have me on here? Most of this could just me being like, hey, tell me about insert a thing or person and then having you turn red as you laugh and say you can't talk about it. Exactly. And some, like our previous conversation about your telephone, you know, I could ask you about that and you also would have to say, well, they're I can't listening talk in on the telephone that. right now. Well, I yeah, think they I are. Think. Probably they're are. Probably they, whoever advertise, they advertise. I don't know. Well, here I am talking about it. You got, so you already got me to, you know. Well, so on most of my episodes, I normally go through like a top 10 list and what are you into and what do you like? But I, I generally know that about you. But what have you been up to during uh, the shutdown? Writing, writing my uh, next book. Uh, oh, yeah. No, what's the title of it? <laughs> It's not ambitious at all. Go, go, what was it? It's uh, the history of the Middle East from the Prophet Muhammad uh, to the present. 78,000 pages long. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm through five pages, man. Mm -hmm. At this rate, you know, in the 2020, 23rd century, I will be done. I asked you how you broke down what to include and what not to include, and you used the word triage. And it's I, historical triage. Yeah, Absolutely. I, I I've, I've done that before. I mean, you just can't go, go over every little thing, or else it would be 78,000 pages. This will be about 350, 400 pages. Okay. Uh, Oxford University Press will be putting out. So and, it'll be $250. Uh, so only for you. Yeah. You had only one book that was approachable copy. and That's only price. if I don't autograph it. <laughs> if I autograph it, it's down to like 2 or $3. I paid seven eighty for your Syria book on Amazon. Does that make well, you feel used? bad? I mean, the I'm, thing is, you I'm got it used. used you got it used and it was only out for like a month. It's like, okay, so who read it and sent it back? Or who didn't read it and just sent it back? You know, for, And what a jerk friend. What, I yeah, exactly. Book. It was yeah. like, geez, maybe I can make some money off of this. Because well, <laughs> it's like $15, right? So uh, is that the only book you're working on now? Uh, well, I think one at a time is enough. Uh, thank no, you very much. I think much. you said you were working on more than one. Uh, sometimes I am. Okay. But this time, no. This, this is uh, focusing on that. And uh, so I've gotten a lot of writing done since I'm at home, you know, more often than not. Not traveling as much, obviously. Uh, I'm halfway through. It should be published in 2022. I'll finish the manuscript first draft by this summer. And it is for the interested general public. I'm trying okay. to write it at that level, okay. which is why there's historical triage, which is why I'm not going into the details of this, that, and the other thing that would bore people and you know, put them to sleep like my other books. <laughs> so, so between <laughs> this your, actually will be interesting you between know? <laughs> your upcoming book and Tom Friedman's from Beirut to Jerusalem, which one do you think will be better? Oh God. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Okay. No, and I like Tom. He's a good yeah, guy, okay. but you know, he wrote one really good book. It's a, it's a, well, it's, it's a good book yeah. and I read it and it's not bad. It's, you know, based on uh, first person uh, experiences. That was my first book to read about the Middle East. And it kind of got me interested. And this is why you're so tendentious and skewed and, and prejudiced. this was a freshman year of college. Yeah, yeah, and that's the only book, you, in fact, you read in college, I heard. No, I read quite a few in college. Law books, but, you know, nothing No, else. in law school, I read law books. <laughs> what kind of jerks that's around I don't think I've ever read a novel. That's the thing. Since really? I've gotten, I have not read a novel since college. Grisham? I mean, no, nothing. Huh. Nothing. Uh, because, you know, I read for fun books about like World War One or the Civil War or some other country just because I like to accumulate knowledge yeah. and learn about these other things. And and uh, actually, I've read some historical novels that I've assigned for my class. So okay, uh, just so they have something other than read and dry academic material. Like so books. you've been writing a book. Um, mm -hmm. You keep quite the social calendar that I have learned to know. Where, where have you been your haunts? It used to be Jay Prime, but you have a new haunt. I don't keep, I don't, I'm not quite the social Oh calendar. God, I went to one of them. I thought it was going to be me, you and Tim cutting up and having a good time. And instead it's you holding court with like 14 people. I can't believe it. But we, we had like the whole restaurant, right? We so were socially distanced and space. You, you can't get your, your, your vibe no. going with a group of 14. No, because I can't rely on you and Tim actually showing up. When we you say are, we're going to be no, there. No, no, you are so unreliable. Hold on. You are so Tim unreliable, maybe. but he, yeah, but he if was driving. I say he I'm going to be there. I'm there. And so I invite all these other people in case you guys don't come. I mean, I just usually tell you came. no. So, you know, yeah. 
It was a good time, wasn't okay, it? Okay, so where have you, you been moving going? around away from people? Oh, God. Well, because nobody was, you know, I, I felt like they weren't being safe. And only half we of us outdoors. got COVID. Only half of us. So well, I think I that's not. a successful a successful you social know, outing, you know? I appreciate you're already making COVID jokes. <laughs> terrible. I know. I know. No, okay, but so I, where have you been going? What's uh, the name of that pl- spot? <clears throat> J Prime? No, the other one. No, the other one. Frida's. Okay, that's Frida's, right. Frida's, uh, Mexican restaurant bar at uh, in Stone Oak as well. And uh, good friend, uh, uh, Fernando Davila. Opened it up. Oh, I thought it was Davil. Uh, one or the other. I don't think there's an A at the end. Okay. Well, then I guess he's not such a good friend. Oh, I don't remember his last name. <laughs> <laughs> no, Fernando's a great guy. Uh, and incredible perspective. Music, we're incredible film, we're, musician. We're recording this at 2 p.m. sober, so I just and, want to be well, clear Well, not about quite. This. Not for well. long. And Justin Hilla, who yeah. is a very uh-huh. good friend yeah. of mine, is interviewing me right now. Anywhere else you've been going? Uh, Any other spots, new spots? Went out? to Perry's, took my son out to, for his birthday on January 22nd because uh, he likes that. And, nice. And, you know, most of, just about every place I go, they're doing a good job in socially distancing. Now, with this new variant out, I'm going to be, I think, a little bit more careful. Which uh, variant are you the most scared of? South Africa, South America, or Britain? Can I get back to you on that? I think I'm most scared of South I haven't studied the South, South Africa America. one. South America, just because... Because you know, did you read about what happened think, in Manaus? Is no, that how you say happened? it? Who? In Brazil? What happened? Isn't that how you say it? Manaus? Manaus? I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, there was like a city in Brazil that had been completely wiped out by... Oh, but it's Brazil. I mean, it's Bolisario or whatever the hell his name is. He's, you know, worse than Trump in Bolsonaro. terms of not... Yeah, whatever. Who is uh, not taking it seriously and so forth. I know, so but, forth. but they had like not a huge outbreak. Not taking it seriously and cutting down the Amazon rainforest. So, you know, no. that's two strikes. I'm trying to him. give you some information about international affairs, and you just won't accept that I know something you don't know. We don't even know the name of the town. So Mana. Mana what? You know, Mana All City. I think about is Muppets. <laughs> Mana, Mana. <clears throat> All right. Uh, you've been writing a book. You've been... You know, same haunts. You know, you really haven't branched out, unfortunately. So nothing to add there. Well, it's places I know, places I trust that that uh, I know that uh, they take. Uh, Did you just go to Pakistan? No, but I may. Oh well, you were soon. planning on it not long ago. Have you done any international travel no. as part of your job? Or no, what? no. And I guess you can't do like diplomacy and stuff like that by Zoom. Via well, huh? Zoom, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, talk about. I can't talk about that. I yeah. can't talk about that either. Yeah. Well, we're really getting far, aren't mm-hmm. we? No, you can't. Uh, can't do that stuff. I, you know, at first I didn't miss it because I was doing so much and it's like, oh man, I can just sit back and, and enjoy. Uh, but now I miss it. You know, I want to, I want to get on a plane and go to Europe. I want to get on a plane to go to the Middle East and, you know, hopefully this thing develops uh, as it has been developing and I'll go to Islamabad in, in Pakistan soon. And, uh, I've yeah, never I th- been there. So. You might be the only person that's sitting around right now pining for the days to go to Islamabad. I'm not pining for Islamabad. Kind I'm of. pining to get on a plane and go internationally. And this is all that's offered me? Well, okay, fine. You know, all right. I'm signing up for it. All, all I thought of was... I like, heard Islamabad's a beautiful city. You know? I'm sure there are parts of it. I won't be going around. What my, my contact there said that uh, Pakistan takes the COVID-19 uh, situation about as seriously as Texas. And I said, okay, I'm, <laughs> I guess I'm going to get it then when yeah. I go there. Yeah. But as he said, look, the Pakistanis... You know, yeah, they're, they're taking certain precautions, but life goes on. And it's like they've been through these wars. They've been through, you know, Qaeda being in the midst of Osama bin Laden being there and all yeah. those, you know, stu- the, the stuff with India. So it's like, this is nothing. This is nothing. And he said, what are you Texans worried about? And I said, well, you know, there was the Alamo. Mosquitoes? <laughs> you know, come on. I mean, yeah. <laughs> We've just, this is self-inflicted wounds. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about a few other things because last time we kind of ran out of time. Um, you sent me an article. It's funny. You like to send me articles like, talk to me about this thing that makes me sound awesome. You know, we might talk about that. Why one, would I send you something that makes me sound like an like Well, an I mean, I want to talk to you about some things that I mean, have not come seriously. to fruition yet, but that you have been. Because I still need to convince you I'm awesome. You're not, you're not entirely convinced. Well. I keep trying. You, you know, because I know you. Even making up these uh, articles and stories. Well, and so let's talk about Austin Tice. I found that to be an interesting story. There's an article that you partly wrote about that situation over there. Why are you looking at me like that? <laughs> What this about? is this is public information, Austin. This is an interesting story. Well, um, it's, it's a it's a heart rendering uh, story. And there's um, a Texas connection to this. Yeah, right? he's uh, he and his family are from Houston, and Austin uh, was a uh, contract photojournalist at the time with the Washington Post. And in August 2012, uh, he went into Syria, uh, and uh, he was taken captive. And I've been working with his parents uh, closely. 
since that time to do whatever I can to help with my contacts in Syria. For those of you listening don't know, I'm a you know, specialist on Syria, and I've been to Syria quite a bit. And as uh, Justin referred to in the beginning, I got to know the president of Syria, Bashar al-Assad, not over eHarmony, but <laughs> through... That uh, is what you said, yeah. <laughs> it is what mm-hmm. I said, yeah. Uh, through, uh, you know, just uh, through contacts and so forth. And, and uh, so whatever I can do uh, to help in terms of advice and, and whatever. And, and, you know, I just feel for them so much. They... We have every indication that Austin is still alive. Uh, there have been a million different reports on who is holding him. And uh, we're just trying to do our best uh, to work with various groups, and including the Syrian government, to try to find him and, and Young, bring him home. Young, good-looking kid. He yeah, grew up in former, Texas. Former Marine, um, which may have been a problem uh, uh. in his getting taken because uh, probably someone – you know, went on his Facebook page or something, and there's... He was maybe at Georgetown Law School at one point yeah, before yeah. he decided to go be kind of a... Yeah, photojournalist. Yeah. Like a photojournalist in war zones and yeah. stuff, yeah. But, you know, I mean, you know, he has that adrenaline, and I mean, that's the photojournalists that do that. You yeah. know, this is how they make their... They want that great photo. They want that great interview. And he want. disappeared over there in, what, 2013? It's August 2012. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so... Best I could tell, doing a little research before you came on, last time somebody confirmed he was alive was 2018 publicly, and then just kind of information um, sporadic? Yeah, there's been little information, and in, in there's uh, some intelligence that that suggests that the group holding him took him to a hospital in Beirut uh, in order to receive some treatment. Mm. Uh, don't know exactly. It was in within the last three years, probably, three or four years. So... That's good news in two ways. One, evidence he's proof of life. Uh, and second, that the group that is holding him is interested in keeping him alive. Sure. So, uh, and certain groups with whom the Obama and then now, uh, and then Trump administration, and probably now the Biden administration, along with the parents have been dealing with, uh, are negotiating as if he's alive. Okay. You know, so. From just sort of a, you know, 30,000 foot perspective, how do you even start approaching a situation like that? Not in this particular situation, but if somebody reached out, you had connections, do you go through the state department? Do you pull, do you reach out to your own connections? What's kind of the, I mean, God forbid somebody's in that situation, but if they are and they were able to reach out, it's just fascinating that these aren't kind of public channels. It's sort of a multi-faceted approach. Well, you, you, yeah, you contact the state department pretty much. And then they rope in the NSC and it really depends on the administration and power. Are they putting an emphasis on, on trying to get hostages back worldwide, not just yeah. in the Middle East or in Syria? And uh, there is a, uh, a special on a special envoy for hostage affairs that was created, uh, I believe, during the late Obama, maybe early Trump administration, which is a White House position that has wow. can have daily access to the to the president. Uh, and then there's what's called a hostage recovery fusion cell. Uh, and these are the groups with whom I've been interacting as well as the, the Tice family and, uh, even more so, much more so than me over the years. Um, and this hostage recovery fusion cell is a conglomeration of many different, de- uh, departments and agencies, uh, you know, NSA, NSC, state department, defense department, intelligence agencies, so forth. And these are the guys, they not only engage in negotiation, with groups in the front lines, uh, but also hostage rescue. Uh, you know, there's, those are serious folks. Yeah. Uh, if, if there's an opportunity to do that, there hasn't been because you don't, we just don't know the exact location and we think there's a, a diplomatic or negotiated path perhaps to getting him back. What is, I mean, it, your experience is Middle East, obviously, and, and particularly probably more Syria than anywhere. Mm-hmm. What would be the upside for a country like that to hold on to someone like this who really doesn't have any sort of... Well, it, it depends on what type of emphasis the United States government puts on getting hostages back. And this, and this is the conundrum. This is the catch-22. The Trump administration, as, as you know, has made a, made a big deal about getting hostages back. It's become a personal issue for Donald Trump, and he's actually done a fairly good job at that, and a number of hostages have returned from Afghanistan, from Iran, from Korea, uh, et cetera. Do you think it's philosophical or photo op? No, I, I, with, with him, yeah. everything's photo op. Kind of, right? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, as the parents of Austin Tice or any of these other hostages, what do they care? Sure. As long as they, the, the catch is, though, one, 
you need that sort of energy at the top to get the whole bureaucracy to focus on this. On the other hand, the other country sees, oh, the president is focusing on this, so our asking price has gone way up. Or does it encourage them to, to, to connect more? It could. Yeah, it could. Uh, and that's one of the things, you know, I've been talking about, you know, don't, we want the president involved, but not too much. You know, where do you, where do you calibrate yeah. it and find that? Because especially in the Trump administration, only he could really generate the type of bureaucratic momentum at all levels. Uh, in fact, we, uh, the Tice family and I actually engineered a situation that compelled Trump to do something and he did it and everybody got in line. Was there a tweet involved? No. I mean, I, I, I kind of joke, but seriously. Yeah, but, well, he did, yeah, uh, after. But he actually gave a press conference. Oh, wow. Uh, where he asked the Syrian government to uh, uh, to uh, affect or help in the return. Of Is there a belief the that the Syrian government has direct, direct access or just that they could pressure if needed? There's a belief that they can be very helpful okay. in gotcha. affecting his return. Uh, has there been any demands for Austin Tice? Yeah, uh, there has been negotiations okay. and there's been some demands like we can we can help you if this, this, this and this. Gotcha. And those is it always like that in, in those types of situations so. that you've been in? Or is it sometimes just a radical group? Wants uh, to well, make it, it can be individual groups. Okay. It can be individual groups. A lot of these individual groups are one offs from the government to give plausible deni- deniability to the government. Yet you know, the government can still reap the benefits of a return on this. Because of those, all those beheadings you saw in the Middle East for yeah. so long of Americans. But they, weren't, weren't, they weren't hostages. They, they just did it for show. Sure. You know, uh, for props and show and to put their, you know, names in the spotlight. And So is Austin Tice sort of the most high-profile hostage being held yeah. in, yeah. in uh, Syria right now? In fact, right now? Uh, Time magazine put out, uh, <clears throat> every so often they put out uh, this list of, in essence, you know, the highest profile hostages or the ones that need attention. And, I think I read that. And number one is, is Austin Tice uh, uh, for most of the time. Sometimes it varies, but, um, but he's been there, you know, if not the longest, you know, pretty close to the longest of any hostage anywhere, U.S. hostage anywhere in the so world. So is there any continuity among administrations on issues like that? I mean, those should not be political types <laughs> issues, but are, are they, in essence, still politically driven at the end of the they're, day? They're political, but there's also... You talked earlier about philosophical philosophical differences on foreign policy, whereas the Trump administration uh, might be open. And this was one of the things that was actually could be good about the Trump administration is that he was so erratic and unpredictable that he opened space for possible negotiation because he was not constrained by any paradigms of sure. foreign policy that are known and conventional uh, foreign policy ideas. And so, you know, that did open space in Korea and in Syria and Iran and Afghanistan and, and so forth. Uh, the Biden administration coming in right now has, I think, you know, will develop a more conventional foreign policy towards Syria, uh, which may or may not mean less contact. If it means less contact uh, and less willingness to negotiate with a government that certain elements in the Biden administration see as illegitimate and should be removed, uh, then it's going to be tough. <clears throat> sure. You know, if, if they see the government as, uh, you know, we don't like it, but it's fair, it won the war, civil war, we have to deal with it, then maybe that will open some space for, for stuff like Austin Tice. Are there multiple governments in Syria right now? Uh, no, just, just the one. I mean, in Idlib in the Northwest, you have uh, various opposition groups still holding uh, in control of most of that province with Turkish uh, backing. That's not going to last all that much longer. But we have recognize Assad's government in Syria. We don't, we, no, we don't. Oh, okay, okay. No, no. Has no. that been the forever policy? No, it's, it's just been since the beginning of the civil war. Who do we recognize as the legitimate uh, government the, in Syria? The Syrian, uh, there's this umbrella group, a na- Syrian national coalition that's, that's actually made up of mostly exiles. Uh, and they uh, actually have a seat in the Arab League. Uh, but the UN, I mean, Syria still has a seat at the United Nations, uh, but we do not, you know, we withdrew our ambassador, obviously, and they yeah. withdrew theirs from the United States. So uh, it's nothing we can't, you know, we can't uh, go back on and, and we can, you know. Diplomatic posturing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm of the belief you just don't do that because you engage in diplomacy, not with your friends, you engage in diplomacy with your sure. enemies. You engage in peace talks, not with your friends, because you're already at peace. You engage in peace talks with your enemies. So I always think there should be a line of communication open, and we, we cut that off, 
And there's people who make the opposite view that you have to make a stand. You have to, you know, the U.S. is the global superpower, so you, you know, that this sends a strong message and so forth. But I think we missed out on a lot during the Civil War when there were perhaps early on opportunities to uh, resolve it uh, much more peacefully and quickly than what happened. So for people that maybe don't know, you had uh, a long-running relationship with Assad. You wrote a book about him. You got a bunch of in-person meetings with him. Uh, one of the things you sent me uh, was this Abraham Path Initiative. Yeah. Did I get that right? Yep. Uh, it was an article written about, which to me it kind of reminded me of sort of ping-pong diplomacy in that uh, this idea of a pilgrimage path, a hiking trail essentially, mm-hmm. if you will, uh, through Syria kind of was an angle at improving relations between the West and and that, Syria. That was not the intent of the founders. It was founded by William Urey from Harvard University and uh, a guy I work with quite a bit and on a number of different things, not just this. And it's a very ambitious uh, touristic walking trail, a lot like the Camino, Camino de Santiago in Portugal and Spain. I can't remember the name. I wrote Spain there. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> It can take a long time to put into place. Uh, it's already it's it's a walking trail through you know it, it to increase intercultural understanding, uh, as well as bring touristic uh, economic. But Syria gain. was a holdout in this idea. Syria, right? it, it start it, again. It it loose it roughly retraces the purported uh, itinerant you know uh, uh, walkings of of the prophet Abraham or Ibrahim in in Arabic Abraham in in Hebrew. And uh, who is, of course, a patriarch to Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. And so he's meant as someone to bring different cultures and peoples together through this walking trail, as well as bringing, you know, economic revenue through tourism to these countries. And so the, the idea started in the early 2000s, and they mapped out, you know, a walking trail in Turkey and Jordan and Palestine and Israel, where it's, it, it uh, is up and running to this day. But you want it connected. You want a contiguous yeah, walking trail. And the, the, you know, the biggest or the longest section of this trail is uh, Syria. Huh. And there's a big gap, obviously, between Turkey and Jordan, and it's Syria. And we always knew that was going to be the hardest nut to crack. Um, and when I say we, uh, uh, the founders, uh, I, I wasn't with this in the beginning. They came to me because they knew my relationship with Assad and my visits in Syria, networking and, and writings on Syria, they came to me around 2007 because they had tried once and didn't get anywhere. And I brought it to Assad, who loved the idea. He really loved the idea and said, well, before I can give public support, and that's the one thing I was, I, we needed to get. I tried so hard to get it. And you know from reading that how hard I tried. Uh, and um, uh, we never got it. He almost gave it because if he gave his imprimatur, you know, saying, I am for this, let's go with it, everybody would have gotten in line. Mm. The religious uh, officials, the security officials, the Muhammadat intelligence, military, business community, they all would have gotten in line. And we did numerous trips between 2007 and 2009 to try to develop this core of religious and uh, uh, business support, and we did to a large degree. Uh, but there were groups in Syria, some religious folks, because of what I call the minaret wars in the article. You know, yeah. these are religious uh, centers, Islamic centers that wanted to be in the middle of this and not some others. Mm. And there was competition. And so one Islamic center uh, leaked some information to the state owned newspaper that accused our. Uh, accused our uh, initiative as being a Zionist plot, you know, Israeli U.S. plot to undermine, and that's all you need to do. It's like fake, it, fake news over there. Oh it's, yeah, you just and, use it oh, for everything. And that's all those groups, and I'm just going to say those groups for now, who were against this from the beginning, who didn't particularly like my relationship with Bashar al-Assad either, because they thought I had some undue influence over him. Uh, they that mobilized them to really move against us, and boy, did they move against us. You they just have nothing better to do? I mean, it's a it's, it, a, it, it's it, a hiking trail. It's their, I know, but it's, the, it's their whole conceptual paradigm. It's totally different. They see the world as threatening. They see, you know, zero-sum game. Yeah, and, and they really do. I mean, and, you know, I knew this would be something that would be hard to overcome is, is like this group of Americans from Harvard were going over there 
And they're going to say, you're going to tell us about the prophet Ibrahim? You're going to tell us about the prophet Ibrahim? You're, you're going to do that? I mean, that's so conceited. Yeah. So typically Western, you know? So we had to fight all that. That's why we wanted to include as many locals as possible and get, get them on board and put them out front locally. Right. Um, but because uh, one of the biggest problems is that uh, the uh, – uh, that is that Israel was involved. Well, I mean, that was the best part of the article I thought was the discussion of sort of how the Zionist stuff got brought up, but then you were able to bring up that the Palestinians had actually supported it going through the right. Golan. In and fact, one, yeah, one of my first uh, visits over there and I met with the, the leading Sheikh, uh, Sunni Sufi Sheikh uh, in, uh, in Damascus, one of the most powerful in the country. And, and he brought a bunch of his, his uh, religious officials, imams with him. And we had this big dinner and he asked me to lead the prayers. I couldn't think of anything, so I just did the Beatitudes, you know, my Catholic upbringing. <laughs> and they were like, wow, that's pretty good. I, it was, you know, I was thinking, well, it's not mine originally. <laughs> it belongs to someone else, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, it, it went very well. And, and, you know, after our dinner and the prayers and everything, we retired, and we had this intense debate. And I know I've been in these intense debates over every a, a slew of different issues in Syria and elsewhere in the Middle East. Ultimately, if you're talking to an American, it comes down to Israel and the Palestinians. Right. You know, and they're saying, until we get the Golan Heights back, which Israel took in the 67 Arab-Israeli war, there can be no justice. Until the Palestinians have a state and, stop, you know, and the Israelis stop uh, oppress, oppressing them, uh, we cannot enter into this. And so I listened to this. They went, there was about 12, 14 of them. They all had their point of view. And I was like, mm, yeah, okay. Uh, you, know, you make a good point and all that. Oh, by the way, this is a brochure. It's from the Palestinian territories. They're already <laughs> engaged in the Abraham yeah. Path Initiative. They have people walking. So I ask you, if they're already engaged in this, why can't you? And I had that in my back pocket just for this moment. <laughs> and they all said, oh, well. And then they all got on board. Huh. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't you know, some of the groups that we really <laughs> needed on I board. I mean, would it be that much of an economic uh, benefit for, for Syria or any area? Uh, it, it can be. It's not, yeah, it's not a slew of five-star hotels along, yeah. the, along the coast but or something like that. neither is the Camino. That. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, but particularly of interest to Syria, and Bashar al-Assad himself is improving the image of the country in the West uh, internationally, and this would do so. But there's always that tension about, being isolated and enclosed so that you can't be infected by these pernicious plots that are constantly coming in from the outside. That's how they see the, see the world uh, versus, oh, this might be really cool. This might help yeah. us economically, help with our image, which really needs help you know, in the West after being on the other side of the Arab-Israeli conflict, the other side from the Western perspective, the superpower Cold War. Uh, so there's always that tension. The in Lebanese Syria. prime minister being assassinated sometimes. Yeah, they, which uh, many people think that Syria is behind. It hasn't been proven, and Hezbollah has been charged. Hezbollah, of course, is very close to, to Syria. Uh, but, you know, uh, in fact, I was with Assad soon after the assassination. I looked in his eye and I said, Did you do it? Did you order it? He looked me straight in the eye and said, yeah. No, no, I'm just teasing. <laughs> yeah, dude, of course, no. No, <laughs> I'm teasing. Anyone hearing this? No, 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 I'm teasing. You sound like uh, Trump right now. Yeah, yeah, He's right. Like, yeah. I asked Putin, and he said it wasn't he's, him. He's, Why he's, would he we, lie? We saw each other. We felt each other. No, he said, no, I, I did not. And, you know, you know all those psychological tricks if you look away or something. He didn't look away and all that. And I, I surmise that, that some groups within Syria, you know, thought they were doing protecting the president and protecting. So I have some very interesting ideas, which I cannot talk about. Sure. Sorry. But um, I mean, there has to be some amount of Assad just basically hanging on and allowing certain groups to operate. Somewhat yeah, there's always, and, and he's talked about giving them too much leeway. In fact, uh, I don't know if I talked about it last time. One time I went over there, it was in the midst of this Abraham, initi- uh, Abraham path initiative stuff where, you know, whenever I arrived to see him, cars picked me up at the airport and they, took me to a VIP thing. I got, you know, VIP treatment the whole way. This one time there were no cars to pick me up, no one meeting me. So I went through customs and I said, okay, well, you know, fine. Uh, maybe they got the wrong schedule or something, you know, but, uh, Hey guys, uh, I'm David Lush. Yeah. Come on guys. Well, seriously. Where's come on. VIP? Come on. I have a meeting with your president. Yeah. And, uh, you told us where you got locked in the room. And, yeah. This is yeah. when I got locked in the mm-hmm. room. And did I tell you this last time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, anyway, it was not a good experience. They were interrogating me. They did the Russian roulette thing with the pistol, in front of me and all that sort of stuff. But that's, you know, like the left hand of intelligence sometimes doesn't know what the right hand of the presidency is doing and vice versa. And when I saw Assad the next morning, and that's how I got out. I finally said, call the freaking office of the president 
and you'll find out I actually have a meeting with your boss. Yeah. And I think, as I said last time, it was almost worth the entire three hours of interrogation to see the colonel who was interrogating me and just turning so pale, saying, oh, my God, my <laughs> career is over. Uh, anyway, I, I saw Assad the next morning. He said, how's your trip? And, you know, as he usually does. And I said, oh, other than the three-hour interrogation at the airport, it was fine. You know, he was aghast. Uh, he said, oh, let me get to the bottom of this. And I finally, I told him, I said, Mr. President, unless you get a handle on these guys, the intelligence guys, they're going to come back and haunt you. And that's exactly what happened uh, with the Syrian uh, uprising because it was overzealous intelligence agents who roughed up some teenagers in the southern Syrian city of Dara and their family members and friends and cohorts. Uh, uh, they uh, protested all this uh, in Dara against the government and there were some shootings and so forth. And that's, that's the, the uh, ember that lit the Syrian uprising. So was the uh, security forces for or against the API? They were uh, neutral publicly. They were not for it. Oh. Well, they probably just don't want a bunch of random people walking through their country, right? They're very, they're, they're very protective. Insular? Insular, very, uh, and very uh, suspicious. Because I'm not an academic like you, this kind of, this brings me to another pop culture thing I wanted to talk to you about. Um, you, I asked you if you watch this Netflix show that uh, has Sasha Baron Cohen. The Spy? Yeah, it's fantastic. And of course you... Uh, you know, academic to me. It was like, oh, it's a oh, bad portrayal. Academic you. But part of that. Actually, I could, I, no, no, because an academic, the general, an academic wouldn't know the difference. It's someone who actually is involved in some of these things, actually knows the difference between reality and making You believe. said it's classic Israeli propaganda that makes Syrians look bad. Something along those lines. <laughs> Probably. That, sound, that sounds like me. I mean, it was made in But the story's in fantastic. Israel. An Israeli spy ends up becoming the defense minister in No, he doesn't Syria. become the defense minister, and uh, he comes close to defense minister. In deputy Syria. defense minister. No, he doesn't even become deputy. He becomes an aide or close to him. That's one of the... You see the problem? I'm going to Google it, because I, I was Googling so, this someone, during the Someone thing. said, you know, you have to watch uh, Madam Secretary. Wait, what was his name? Shut up. Ili, Ili Cohen. Oh, yeah, that's right. Or Ili Okay, go Cohen. on about Madam Secretary. Well, Madam Secretary, you know, they said it's a great show, so I tuned in one time. And it just gets frustrating. Look, you got look. If you watch lawyer shows, and you must get frustrated. I can't okay, watch this because this is the chief advisor to the minister of defense. Yeah, that's not pretty the high ranking. That's not no. the deputy. I mean, you could call it whatever. Oh, it's you want. very high ranking. Okay. It, it's the anyway, it's a fascinating oh, story. It, it's 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 an it's an incredible story. But you haven't watched and the he, show, so the show really really lays into the fact that the Syrian intelligence forces always were skeptical of him and the president sure. liked him and was won over it by him. My kind of question is, does a single incident like that where a country is kind of embarrassed publicly mm -hmm. on a global scale where the Syrian intelligence had it right, but the president had it wrong sort of create a culture for, for decades to come that the Syrian intelligence mm -hmm. gets a little more leeway and a little more power from a single incidence like that. It could. I yeah. mean, they can always point back to that, although it's, you know, how many years ago now? 50 years, but uh, 45 years, whatever it is. Uh, they can always point to that. Uh, even in Israel, there have been divisions between the civilian leadership and military intelligence and Mossad and so forth over the, you or know. Or here during Hoover. Or here, yeah, exactly. So, you know, uh, when one is right and the other is wrong, and they keep referring to that in meetings, look, you know, you better follow us this time because look what happened then. So it can do that. Uh, I just think that there's been so many conspiracies in Syria among Syrians themselves and outside powers ever since their independence in 1946 that it creates this conspiratorial mindset and attitude and paranoia that, that permeates Syrian so society. So we're going through that right now as a country. We're going through this weird, like, conspiracies are becoming mainstream mm -hmm. in a way they never had. Um, in countries like that, is that government-driven, media-driven, even though the media is government, or is that just old hens sitting around talking in a no, room no, and it, it just takes it, off. It's definitely uh, government state-run media driven because it provides an excuse to maintain the security state. You know, if there are not all these conspiracies, why do we have to have this heavy-handed intelligence apparatus? Why sure. do we have to have this size of an army and stuff like that? So it is self-serving, but on the other hand, there's been enough real conspiracy, enough real imperialism and machination from outside sources to make everything plausible. Yeah. And that's the problem. That's the problem. I mean, one of the things, you get this not just from Syria, but all over the world, is their overestimation of the capabilities of the CIA. I remember uh, having uh, a dinner with Madeleine Albright after she was, uh, after her stint as Secretary of State. And, um, 
And I remember so, having dinner with Madeline Albright one night. Maybe I, you know, once her. I said that, of course you're. Once I said that, you, I knew you were going to always name dropping again. Anyway, um, but you know, we were talking about this, and she looks at me and says, "I wish we were only that good." You know, in our dreams, can we actually control every event in every other country when it's usually just happenstance? I mean, and if the, it's successful. It's like by accident, you know, rather the than... The 70s was kind of the heyday of the CIA. 50s. Okay. 50s. There were a lot of successes. In, when did the Iran, 70s when we were South Dominican America? Republic. Oh, was the South America stuff in the 50s? Yeah, yeah okay. 50s. Some of the 60s, yeah. Okay. All right. And we tried in Vietnam, this stuff didn't work out too well. And then everybody the just 60s. got better at catching well, did, it or well, heading well, it off? Well, that's the thing. If, if, if your default line is you're suspicious of every American that comes oh, yeah. in, I, I am sure a number of people in the, uh, in the Middle East, and I know this, they, they thought I was CIA. Because why else is he here? Yeah. How does he know so much about us? You know, why is he interested? In fact, one high-level... CIA guys in the movies always are way cooler looking than you. They always have beards and they're like scraggly. Well, that's you wouldn't why, make it in the that's movies. That's why they hired me. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I can't talk about that. Uh-huh. No. Uh, they didn't hire me. But they think this. And, uh, and it's, it's difficult. And, and in a way, in a way, you can make it work for you. Because it's like, if they think this, well, then I got access and some juice, then just being this academic interested in, right. in this or representing, even just representing the State Department or something like that. So a lot of times they, they enhance your position and value and you can make good use of it, but also it can complicate things on many different levels. But you definitely have your rooms tapped, right? Your oh, phones God, while yeah. you're there? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, in Israel, I got my rooms tapped. Huh. And in, in Syria all the time, I could, in the vents, you could see the cameras. Really? And one time I was just pissed. I think it was after that time I was like went to the camera and I just went. Uh, I, for those of you listening on the radio, I'm giving the middle finger. Yeah. I just went like that. And uh, uh, so podcasts yeah. aren't on the radio, Doctor Lesh. Mm-hmm. It's podcasts don't play on the radio. I'm sorry. What what on streaming is that yeah. what it is? Uh, that, 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 that would work. You see, I'm yeah. modern. I'm, I'm technologically. Uh, for those of you apt. listening on the old AM radio. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> I still have that. You know? <laughs> All right. So uh, you're not going to watch the Ellie Cohen, the spy. It's fantastic. Sasha Baron Cohen's really hit his stride. If you've seen the Chicago eight, seven, whichever one it was seven, also fantastic. Um, I think, but I think the show they call the Chicago eight because they initially tried one of the Black Panthers with the group. Right. And the idea was to get that racist effect on all the other people. That was sort of the idea on the trying. Whole, mm-hmm. as, as a yeah. Black Panther movement. All Wouldn't let him have stuff. his lawyer, so he finally yeah. got mistried out. Uh, I may watch it at some point. You know, maybe part of it is Sasha Baron Cohen being the, the star. I can't get Borat out of my oh, mind. I know. You know, it's yeah. just difficult, but he, but he does he pull it off. He's fantastic. Yeah. It's just, again, going back to Madam Secretary, I, I watched an episode and I was like, this, this isn't how it happens. Mm. It's just not. And so I get frustrated. And so I know I'm going to get frustrated with this. I'm sure it's well done. I'm sure a lot of it is true. I think I told you a, a group, um, this was three years ago, a group contacted me who, who knew that I had high-level contacts in Syria. And there have been many groups, uh, some you know, family members of uh, Eli Cohen and, and others who have tried to get his uh, remains back from Syria, this is an obsession uh, in Israel over all of those who have fallen. And, of course, he's a hero. He has streets named after him and, and whatnot. Um, and uh, they contacted me and said, can you use your contacts to, you know, maybe we can start a discussion. We're willing to pay for it and lots of money to pay for his return, the return of his remains. And I got him in touch with, you know, the relevant people yeah. in Syria. And nothing, I, I suppose nothing came of it. Maybe that did. There were some conditions around it. But... It was just so interesting to me that after so much time, what's that, 67 to 17? Is that? It was even before the 67 war. Yeah, that he was taken. Yeah, 61 to 65. He was executed in 65. Uh, the information he gave, you know, to uh, transfer to the Israelis, depending on your viewpoint, but. Uh, so the they said one of the he things he did. Instrumental in Israeli taking When the Golan he was Heights. a businessman, they, he had connections in the military. They would take him to the Golan Heights to show sort of how they looked over Israel farming communities. Yeah. And they said he planted trees. He, he, he was a social butterfly. They first, it was brilliant the way that Mossad did this. They first put him in Argentina. And right. pretending to be an expat Syrian. And he held these parties. And I was everything. reading the Wikipedia. A lot of the stuff seemed to track sort of his history. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, he, uh, they brought him to Syria and he held all these parties, which is, you know, I've been to some of these, but not his, but obviously, but some of these parties were just networking and, 
and he used he went all out networking. Right? I mean the the stuff that no one talks. I didn't about go to any of those parties. Okay, yeah. I didn't go all to any right, of those right. parties. But uh, uh, yes, uh, some some treats were provided at. The, but they uh, said he bought he planted trees for the soldiers in Syria, yeah. but it actually was marking the tunnels. Yeah, I don't know. Syrian I don't know if that's true or not, but. You know, it's it could be. It's yeah. fascinating. I'm sure there are all sorts of stories uh, revolving around this, but uh, and and there's there's some you know there's some uh, uh, different views on whether the information he gave to Israel, which it used to take the Golan Heights in the '67 war, whether it was actually crucial or not. It certainly was at least helpful, yeah. I think, or confirmed existing information that Israel got through aerial reconnaissance. Another big so part forth. of it was that he was instrumental in, I guess, Israel bombing. Saddam, I mean, Osama bin Laden's father's construction company's attempt to dam a major river going into Israel. Yes. Uh, in the uh, in the Golan Heights, the, the three tributaries that feed the Jordan River, which is the lifeblood of Israel. Yeah. Uh, the Jordan River isn't isn't very big, but it, it feeds into the aquifers, which, which basically allow sure. Israel to, to drink <laughs> and water. And um, uh, they were going to block the tributaries that run through that feed into the Jordan River. And so you know, he fed information to the Israelis. This is, this is what they're going to do, bomb the bulldozers. And, and uh, you know, at that time, I always, say, I always say in class when I teach this portion of it, it's like the last thing in the world I wanted to be is a Syrian bulldozer driver, <laughs> no protection, and here's the Israeli Air Force, you know, coming in and just bombing the hell out of but you. But was Saudi Arabia funding that? Uh, I don't have any information yeah. on that. You but, know, I mean, I, it was weird to see the, it, the it, it, it was Osama an, bin Laden It was connection. an Arab League-sanctioned action. And okay. so the Saudis, yes, probably Saudi money was involved. They were that organized back then, the Arab League? This this was a way – it's very complicated. Gamal al the the, 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 the the god in the Arab world at the time of the president of Egypt, he wanted to try to find a way of reacting to the Israeli diversion of the Jordan River – to make the Negev, uh, uh, it was called the Israeli National Water Carrier Project, to make the Negev Desert green, you know. Uh, and the whole Arab world, of course, comes to Nasser and says, you got to do something. Go to war with Israel. You, you're the leader of the Arab world, Arab nationalism. You've been all this anti-Zionist talk, and Nasser's like going, oh, <laughs> damn. I didn't expect these guys would actually want me to go to war with them. Yeah. And so what can I do? Get Arab League sanctioned. What can I do? To, uh, uh, to avoid war but seem like I'm doing something. Oh, okay, well, let's try to do the th- block the three tributaries that lead in Jordan River. Oh, and all the way, and by the way, let's create the Palestine Liberation Organization. So that's when the, okay. pa- the PLO was created as a way to siphon off pressure on Nasser to actually go to war. He could actually say, look what I'm doing, these things short of war. Ultimately, the irony is that he did go to war, <laughs> and yeah. he was right. He should have never gone to war. Because that's when he, he lost the Suez Canal. Uh, he he right? lost Suez Canal, the Sinai Peninsula, yeah. Um, and uh, really his job, in essence, he was delegitimized. Were you ever interviewed by Larry King? No. <sighs> he interviewed 30,000 people and you were not one of them. I'm sorry. I did you see know. the, uh, I, I was, it was, I watched the one with him and Yasser Arafat and who was the, uh, prime minister of Israel at the time? Shimon Perez or? Yeah, it was Shimon yeah. Perez, Yasser Arafat and maybe or, uh, Clinton. Yitzhak Rabin. Yitzhak Rabin okay. was the prime That's minister. That's who I wanted yeah, to say yeah. actually. Okay. But man, he got some great interviews. Oh, he is incredible. Yeah. I mean, he got everybody. Anybody was anybody, you know, and which is why I, was, I wasn't on there. Because <laughs> I mean, he had children. Uh, yeah. Zookeepers. Well, yeah, yeah. exactly. A, um, a few. So another thing that has happened in, in your recent San Antonio years is you've become close with the mayor, sort of close with what's going on with the mayor. I mean, it's fair to say prior to... Ron, you weren't very involved in No, I in didn't even politics. know when the mayoral elections were. Okay. I, I, frankly, I didn't, because that's not my radar. My, you know, the, nationally, internationally is, is where I focus. That's on my radar screen. San Antonio wasn't. Half the time, I didn't even know what the mayor, who the mayor was, and that's my bad. I, you, you think know, it's because you live way up north? Maybe, and yeah. I'm not from here, you know, okay. so, you know, I have my worlds, and that wasn't one of them, and... But uh, a mutual friend, uh, Bill Clover, uh, was a local icon, dear friend, and he inter- introduced us uh, early in Ron's campaign for mayor, and we hit it off. And you know, I really, I really believe in him. I think he has incredible integrity. Very, very smart. Uh, do I agree with everything he says? No, but that's why I think yeah. he values uh, uh, my friendship and advice. Uh, so you know, through that relationship. I've become more aware of San Antonio, aware of what's needed in San Antonio. Uh, I've, uh, you know, become involved with the Violence Prevention Division uh, in, within the San Antonio Metropolitan Health District 
as well as Stand Up uh, SA, which is a frontline uh, group which tries to reduce violence in some of the high violence areas uh, in San Antonio. Sure. And uh, in fact, I'd love to have some of those people. Yeah, you, you know, mentioned on it, your yeah. uh, on your show. I think they're incredible people, incredible stories. I mean, talk about risking their lives to to save other lives. Right. Uh, that's what these guys do. And I hosted a dinner for them just to you know, as one citizen in San Antonio, thanking them for their effort. This staff of Stand Up SA and the stories. Oh my God! I mean, literally, they are between two gang groups with guns drawn, ready to fire each other, huh. and they're using their their. Uh, uh, they're trained in the techniques developed by Cure Violence. I talked about that last time on Cure Violence. Is a I had the director on. That's right, Gary Slutkin, yeah. a dear friend, and I'm on the board of that. And so I've been trying. I brought Cure Violence to San Antonio, which has informed. Uh, uh, actually, brought them back to San Antonio. They were here some years ago and then left. Uh, and they just signed a new contract. They were just like, ah, no violence here. See y'all later. <laughs> 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 funding. We're done. <laughs> funding. Funding was the issue. No, there was there was violence, but it was a funding issue. And uh, But so they're back. And What do you think Canada. Ron's, you know, sort of major challenges are coming into this election? Um, mayor, uh, the mayor elections in May uh, announced so far is uh, Brock House. Has he announced formally? Or just indicator. whatever he's running, yeah, and then sort of a school teacher, a may, uh, a, a attorney, but it's going to be a Brockhouse yeah. Nuremberg. What do you think the challenges are I, for? I Ron? think the challenge for Ron is is reaching across various lines and barriers that have come up or been created uh, or or uh, perceived to have been created between him and certain you know uh, groups in San Antonio the business community where he's really improved his relationship, I think. You know, Ron is perceived to be left of center, and he is in a lot of things, but I think he, he is uh, uh, bipartisan in many ways and can, posi- can position himself that way. Uh, so I think that's a challenge. I think, I mean, I, I, I hope that this is a slam dunk uh, reelection, and he really gets that mandate to the extent that a San Antonio mayor can do yeah. in, a, in, a, in a council manager form of, of government, but at least that moral mandate, the bully pulpit to, to really, you know, uh, to really move forward in some of the things he wants to do and transportation. And, and so, but right now, of course, everything's pandemic and yeah, you know, everyone's been sidetracked by that, including the Biden administration. So do you track uh, bare facts and say nonprofit website no. that sort of does polling, No, but they've been polling Ron and, and there for a while he was kind of stratosphere, but he's still way up mm-hmm. in sort of approvability ratings. Um, I think he needs to, I mean, frankly speaking, he needs to avoid a, a Chick-fil-A type of thing, which almost derailed his, which is so weird to think that that's the kind of stuff that can sway an election, but I agree with you because yeah. it's a sociocultural marker, you know, and it, it galvanizes a certain section of the community and so, Brockhouse tapped into it like he should have. And he did very well. Uh, but, you know, I, th- I think Ron got involved in that in a way that, you know, because you know, he's Ron, Ron goes sometimes, you know, where his heart goes. And, and he I, got into it in the wrong way, too. I he thought. did. He like, did. And it was all defensive the whole time. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, th- I thought there were better ways. And I think looking back, he probably changed some things, but to, to avoid those type of things. Uh, and there, there, you know, there are these pitfalls or landmines out there. Uh, and, and I guess sometimes you have to be a political animal in election year. This is why I wish the election cycle was three or four years rather than every two years. Cause you're always running for, election. yeah, they should be two, four years. Ridiculous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, and it doesn't allow a mayor to, or a city council member to really dig into the stuff they want to do because they're constantly running for real. Right. Um, so, you know, my work, my advice is worthless, but I, I think Ron should take his, very big mandate on his jobs program, which I think it passed by 73 yeah, yeah. Um, without any facts. I mean, the problem with that jobs program, nobody you, knows yeah, what it means. You had lots of doubts about it or I, didn't, or hold just on. lack of I information. I still have a lot of doubts lot because of there's information. no information. It feels like $150 million slush fund to me, mm-hmm. which people want $150 million jobs program. They've, they've made clear through their votes and still there's no additional information about how is this going to be run? How is the city getting looped in? Mm-hmm. Where are those high paying jobs? And well, it, you know, it, when it, I reached it, out to him, I told yeah, him that it I is said, a real program. Uh, it's, it's, who runs it's it? getting out. Uh, you don't know no. who's involved. You don't well, know. Well, yes, I do. I've been, I've been to the workforce training sites at SAMSAT in Port San Antonio, uh, San Antonio museum of science. But it's Technology. being run through the city's like job tra- training program. So one employee now all of a sudden has, an additional 150 million and how many jobs like 
There's no infrastructure that has been ramped up. There is some association with Alamo colleges, which mm-hmm. is kind of amorphous. Um, the idea that like code up or rack space are involved have been kind of floated, but hasn't really been put out there. Well, you know, you know, I, I think, I think to a degree, the, uh, the overwhelming vote in favor of this maybe made city government a little complacent about it. You know what I mean? If oh, it, but if, if I'm Brockhouse, I, I say Ron passed $150 million slush fund and he still is not telling you where that money is. It is his pet project. That's going to go to his buddies. That's what I'm doing if I'm Brockhouse because okay. that's Brockhouse's well, personality. Ron has to find, and his staff need to find an answer to that, and I, and, I agree. and show and show where the money is going and what's happening. And it's in the early stages, obviously, but they need an infrastructure that can say this is what'll happen yeah. in year one, year two. I'm sure there's a business plan. <laughs> there should be. I, I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm you. sure there is. I had the campaign uh, manager on here, and he couldn't answer some of those questions too. There's got. I mean, you know, for instance, the business. David, the, I'm with you. It's I, just I know, not there. I know, and there should be. Like the violence prevention division uh, has, I mean, they've, they sent me this huge business plan, which, which is brilliant. It makes sense. All these different programs. It was carefully conceived and constructed. Uh, it just uh, uh, came on board. It has funding, necessary funding. It came on board October 1st. All these different programs. It's integrated, comprehensive from education, you know, uh, of children and uh, businesses to stopping violence on the front lines. Right. I mean, the whole gamut, the whole spectrum. Um, and I would hope that this is something that, uh, if, if not already, develops along those lines yeah. where it has a very detailed business plan, and this is where you're going to go. And business plans are dime a dozen and all that, but you need some sort of... I think there should be a glo- like a call to arms. I mean, and this is what I said to Ron. Like, you've got businesses like mine that have been blessed and been able to weather the storm, and I take interns and train them. So paralegal interns and them, we do that. And Nice water, by the way. This yeah, is very thanks. nice water. But there should be some effort to loop in more of the city and employers to be part of this. So I would do that for free. But there's well, no call to arms they, among our brothers and neighbors. They brought in a, lo- a bunch of business people to support this. You know, they have, I think, HEB and other <laughs> ones to hire, to hire these people once they go through this program, or they have commitments to hire these people. Right. Uh, so Fork, that's forklift you know. operators or some of them, which those jobs are good too. But part of the idea was this higher paying class of jobs, which I'm telling you, into, you're close with Ron. I've, the, I've dug into the, te- the tech right. world, basically, is where we're going. I'm just saying like it's that. a vulnerability. If you it's, look, if you look at the, if you visit the workforce site uh, at Port San Antonio, I mean, it's a very high tech. I mean, it's trying to train. Yeah, but that people. was existing before. I mean, you understand, like the fact that you and I can have a discussion, we're both pretty well informed, mm-hmm. tuned in, and we still really don't know what's going on. I think I just think it's You're a big right. vulnerability. You're right, for it him. needs definition, and yeah. uh, and they need to do that because it's a lot of money. Yeah, and and it, and it's money that. But but th- this is this is something that's become a pet thing for you, right? I mean, this, this is really something you want to find out more as a, as a concerned citizen. I do. I think it's a great idea. Please tell think, us how this is think, better for do us. Do you think that, that uh, those who are going to vote in May are as educated, concerned, and looked into as much nope, as you? No, but I think Brockhouse... But can, is he going to communicate? Is he going to uh, get that information across? I think that is one of his gifts, is yeah. finding that one wedge and just yeah. exploiting it. And yeah. I, I, I think, yeah, I, I think it might be you right. know, give him three talking points and he's going to kick your well, ass with Chick, it. The Chick-fil-A thing. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know. and this is a really good one. So it became more of a pet project for but, me, actually. But, but, it, but it, it, it's, it's a different issue. He's going to come after a program that got approved by, what, 70% mm-hmm. that creates jobs or supposed to create right. jobs. You know, what downside? It's, it's not a cultural issue. It's not a religious issue. You know, where's the money? Where's the money for this? I want to see the business plan. Does that really resonate with a voting public? I think government waste resonates exactly with those type of voters that he's going for. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Well, he's admitted he's going for the Trump. Yeah, of course. The Trump people. Uh-huh. And they're concerned with that. So Yeah. Um, so this became more of an issue in my brain after I had the episode with the campaign manager. You I got an episode? Yeah, I got multiple phone calls and emails from people that are like, we're just trying to find out where that money's going. Because I had sort of asked those questions, but Mm -hmm. it was a real issue for people, specifically people that were really struggling during the pandemic, Mm -hmm. who were wondering why that money wasn't propping up business. It was going to train people in some unknown way. So Mm -hmm. anyway, that's my thoughts. You disagree with me, obviously, but... No, um, I I don't disagree. I, I, I agree with you that there has to be much more, you know, better explanation for this and much more 
delineation of, of the whole program and how it's going to proceed, where the money is, where it's going, all that sort of stuff. And the uh, Nuremberg campaign better have an answer for all that. Yeah, because I, I, think, I think Brockhouse would love to go after him on the pandemic, but mm-hmm. I don't think he's I got enough. He can't. Yeah. Yeah. But he does have something here, and I just think it's a it's a it's an it's an unforced error. Like you can fix this, just give us some information, come out with a big plan. I think it's easy mm-hmm. to do. Um, David, another thing I want to talk to you about before we're done here is mm-hmm. that you have been uh, one of my biggest fans on the show. You have helped me get guests. Mm-hmm. Tell me yes. about tell me about some of your favorite guests that I've <laughs> that I've given, listened to that I've listened to yeah, uh, on the show. Because I think you were maybe guest number four or five, and then you Something actually were like really that. good about listening to him for a while yeah, and, and yeah, recommending. Yeah. Uh, some of the people, and I forget some of their, their names that you had early on that were uh, pandemic uh, uh, center. Sharice Allegrini. Allegrini, the, right. Yeah. I thought was very good. Uh, my friend Gary Slutkin. Yeah, he was great. great. Ron was great. Yeah. Nuremberg was, was great. Gary uh, was great because it was – he, he was so involved with the pandemic as yeah. well as cure violence. Yes, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's one of the leading epidemiologists in the world. You, you, you couldn't have anyone better to discuss that. And, and uh, he's most willing to do this sort of thing to get the word out, especially early on. Yeah. To get the word out. He was, he was uh, I think, he, I don't know if he talked about it on his show, but he went on some really right-wing, you know, conspiracy this pandemic's a yeah. conspiracy anti-maskers he purposely went on good for him just to you know and, and he was great very diplomatic he said well i see your point of view but you know how yeah. about this how about this so you know i i, I really uh, appreciate uh, what he's done he's got that affect too yeah they yeah. can handle yeah exactly that, yeah. i mean he's, he's dealt with ebola in africa did you listen to eric cooper or the yes. food bank yes yeah, that was uh, that, timely. as well as uh the guy with the hair uh, the sex change doctor, yes, yeah. Dr. Crane. <laughs> that, was, so, that was hilarious. The day after I published, I woke up and I'm getting so many comments uh, to my YouTube channel that yeah. I had to turn it off. And <laughs> one of his, um, I don't, foes, I will say, have found the, the fucking episode and just tweeted to attack my YouTube page. Oh, who's the guy on Facebook? I I, I got on a, 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 a I, maybe there's more than one, but there's this one guy recently, like the last couple of weeks. I mean, he just laid into you. And I was like, where is this dude coming from? He was like making stuff up. Oh, per, the just attacking me personally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah, you know, and, and the guy that called he me an thinks idiot. You're a friend. Yes. Yes. Yeah. He's a personal trainer. Oh, okay. You know, I mean, bored. Seriously, yeah. I, you know, get a life type of thing. But yeah. uh, uh, no, I, uh, uh, Tom Kaiser was. In fact, I just had lunch with Tom uh, a couple days ago. You know, I did not guy. expect to enjoy that one, but I did. Yeah. Well, yeah. if you if you love baseball, yeah, you, you, you've got to love that because yeah. there's, there's few people I know who are as knowledgeable about the game at so many different. We we talked yesterday. He's so. Oh my God, he is. He's like, what what is happening to the minor league? He got out at the right time because there's no more uh, uh, president of the Texas League. The MLB, Major League Baseball, Manfred, and the and the corporate bosses in New York have gotten rid of all the minor league presidents and now have regional heads. Oh, shit. So there will be two or three or four minor leagues, if not more, with, uh, with one regional head. And as Tom said, if that regional head is in Atlanta for the South, that includes Texas or something like that, so many times Tom had to drive out as the president of Texas they had to drive out and deal with a dispute between umpires and the and the and the team or you know just little shit are they all under the MLB umbrella yep MLB is a, is is uh, a power play okay they've gotten rid of about quarter to a third of all the minor league uh, teams uh, consolidating under them uh, now in the long haul I, I I can't say if it's good or bad uh, it's bad for a lot of cities who've lost these yeah. teams and very successful cities successful minor league cities. Uh, but there's going to be, you know, a lot less attention given to certain things that arise uh, in games that, you know, someone like Tom had to deal with on a on a uh, everyday basis. Yeah. So it's much more impersonal, uh, much more business and corporate. Uh, and is that the way everything's going? Who knows? Uh, you know, I can't say 20 years from now we can look back and say that was a good move or that sucked. Right, right. But uh, – uh, but right now, I mean, Tom was just like, I got out the right time. Cause if I didn't, I would be on the street right yeah. now, not without a job. So yeah, he was, he was just a, uh, like encyclopedic knowledge about oh, yeah. oh, baseball. Yeah. 
And well, specific I, I, as minor you know, league. back uh, a long time ago, I taught a history of baseball course. Uh, history of baseball in American society, looking at American history through the prism of the history baseball, of baseball. Yeah. And he would always come and, and uh, uh, give a, uh, a talk in, in my class. And uh, it was a you know, freshman course. And it was kind of like, you know, they want you to teach something that's not in your field, but that okay. you're interested in, you know, that you have a passion about. And, and uh, you know, Tom, the first time, you know, he said, well, what should I talk about? I said, I'll just name drop. <laughs> in this case, just name drop. Just yeah. talk about your experiences with Pete Rose. You talked about Pete Rose thing and all that. That's all you need. You know, to we do. didn't talk much, Pete Rose, a little bit, but I thought we were going to spend more time on it. And he just, we got caught up in wild stories uh, of minor yeah, league. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, he, he, did he, say, he told you about the time that uh, he was with the Cincinnati Reds, Pete Rose is the manager, and Tom was in the back with his radar gun. And, uh, you know, uh, getting the pitcher's speed, you know, to see if it's slowing down as yeah. the innings go on. And he got a call from uh, Pete Rose on, on the, uh, you know, the thing he has in his ear. And uh, Pete says, hey, Tom, did you do, you, do uh, how did the, the so-and-so, the Pirates do today? What's well, the score of, you know, that? And, and Tom didn't think any of it at the yeah. time, but he was checking on his bets. You know? <laughs> so. Do you think he should be banned from the Hall of Fame? Man. I mean, in light of it, Tiger Woods and Barkley, I, know. I mean, this is, the character clause thing is is more important in baseball than any other sport. Huh. Yet you have Ty Cobb, who is an out and out racist. You have Babe Ruth, who was a lewd, you know, drunken. You have the steroid. You era. have the steroid, but the steroid guys—that's the—that's the argument. The steroid guys aren't getting in, and their argument is okay. So you'd rather have someone to take steroids, you know, keep them out, and keep all these racist, you know, uh, uh, decadent major leaguers in, but the thing is, is, is steroids enhance your performance. Yeah. It's on the field, you know, and there is a character clause in the baseball hall of fame. And this is the Kurt Schilling argument. Kurt Schilling is not getting in because he's a racist. Yeah. I mean, he's an Islamophobe. He's right wing conspiracy nuthead, but he's saying, I didn't take steroids. You let Ty Cobb in. He was yeah. much more racist than I was, you know? So let me in. Is it on-field performance or not? But it's the perception of the sports writers. Sure. I mean, can I, if I was a sports writer, could I, you know, given what my stance, my, you know, humanism, op open, you know, heart, open-minded, could I let Kurt Schilling in? Could I vote for him? It'd be a tough call. Yeah. It'd be a tough call, you know? So... David, who do you think? So I always end these with a uh, top three. Who do you think I should get to come on this year? How long have we been on? One hour and two minutes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I want you to get on. Um, uh, Sepulveda. Huh? Juan Sepulveda at Trinity University, who you've already contacted. Uh, great political. I wish you could have got him on before the election. But, yeah. You know, uh, things were, your, your life was crazy at the time yeah. and, and so forth. But still have him on because uh, he is so knowledgeable on uh, urban politics. He'll yeah. give you a lot more information about what's going on okay. in San Antonio than, than I would. Um, uh, Sishan Siv, the, uh, I haven't connected you with. I told you I would. And, and Sishan is uh, an, an incredible story, an incredible human being. He lives in San Antonio now. I've known him for a while. Uh, he was uh, uh, ambassador to the UN from the George H.W. Bush administration. Oh, wow. He survived the Khmer Rouge in uh, that right? Cambodia or Kampuchea. And he, uh, uh, was it 15 or 17 members of his family were killed? You know the, the movie Killing Fields with yeah, Sang Hung Noor and all that? Uh, he lived it. I mean, that, that, that could be about him. He's wow. escaped. He uh, came to uh, New York with $2 in his pocket and somehow ended up close to George H.W. Bush and became a, I mean, it's a success story. Yeah. He loves America. He's so giving. He's What's he such a now? humanitarian. Huh? What's he do now? He's retired, but he does a lot of humanitarian work. Cool. I have this great, wonderful story of Sishan, which, you know, I'm sure he would like to tell you, but just as a, uh, you know, wet your whistle to the yeah. listeners, and I think he would come on, is that uh, he learned English uh, in Singapore, uh, which is another story, which I'll tell you after this. Uh, he got a job at a fast food restaurant in New York, one of his first jobs. He had halting English. And some guy says, uh, can I have a, uh, you know, a, a Big Mac or something, but hold the lettuce. And so he comes out, gives the Big Mac, and he's holding lettuce in his hands. <laughs> he said, hold the lettuce. That's awesome. You know, it's, it's a literal, not idiomatic, it's a literal meaning. He learned English. This is one of the, one of the 
uh, a couple of years ago, we were having dinner together, and we never knew this about each other, but he learned English in Singapore. I was talking about uh, a good friend of mine, Sir Sam Fowle, who was a British diplomat. He, he passed away about you know, 15, 10 years ago in his 90s, one of the most amazing men I ever met. He was, he, he was in the British Navy in Singapore in 1942 when, when uh, it fell to the Japanese. Mm. His ship was sunk. He was taken prisoner, spent the rest of the war in a Japanese internment Jeez. camp. It was awful, yeah. but he learned 10 languages there because of all the different nationalities yeah. that were in prison there. And he really knew that. He really knows them. He became uh, ambassador to uh, Iran. He was in Iran during the Mossadegh uh, coup. He was in Iraq in 58 during the Iraqi coup and revolution. I mean, I always kidded him. I said, is this just a coincidence <laughs> wherever you serve as ambassador or deputy ambassador or whatever that, or commissioner that, you know, these coups happen? An amazing, amazing man. He has, a bio, he has an autobiography, which is really a love story of him and his wife and, and th through the prism of all these different experiences. But he was in Singapore. He was high commissioner to Singapore in the 70s. Uh, and um, uh, uh, Sishan was there learning English. And I told Sishan about this story about Sir Sam Fallon. He goes, does he have a daughter named Margaret or Anne? I go, yeah. And did he, you know, and were they in Singapore? Yes. He learned English from Sir Sam Fowle's daughter. <laughs> wow. The next day, who is my dear friend. It's yeah. one of these incredible small world things. He sent me. In uh, Singapore. In Singapore. Not like small world San Antonio. Now, and, and Sishan sent me an excerpt from his autobiography, uh, and, which is amazing. You should read it, uh, which you will if you have them on, I'm yeah. sure. And the excerpt is about Sir Sam Fallon, his daughter. Oh, cool. And he sent me a picture of it. And, you know, it's just uh, I'm blessed to, to have, you know, have these people in, 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 our, in my world, have touched me in my world, have guided me. Sir Sam is one of my mentors. The fact that he took a liking to me, yeah. uh, you know, is just amazing. And, you know, Sishan has this. How old is Sishan? Uh, late 70s. Okay. At least. Great guy. Uh, have him on, but he has this vision of the world that like-minded people find their way yeah. to each other, mm. you know, and like I found my way to you. Well, or actually you found your way to me. I don't remember how that works. I don't know. It was at a bar. Yeah. I remember we were Tim <laughs> and we, you're like, we tripped oh, over each other. Who's this young guy. <laughs> okay. Well, so that's two. So who's my third? You said three, didn't you? Yeah. One. Oh, the, uh, uh, somebody, I'm not going to name names cause I don't want to, put her on the spot, but uh, somebody from the Violence Prevention Division uh, okay. in San Antonio with whom I've worked, uh, brilliant, uh, visionary, and uh, can talk about those issues in San Antonio, which need to be talked about. Awesome. Yeah, so. Well, David, thank you for doing this again. Also, seriously, thank you for getting all these people to come on my show. You've been I will keep trying. the most helpful keep my of all best, of But I'm running out of people, man. Well, you know, it'll, it'll <laughs> I'll, I'll take off trying. at some point, you know. Uh, but thank you for doing this. Sure, and, my uh, pleasure, buddy. Your drink's getting empty, so yeah, seriously. we'll do this again next seriously. year. I mean, what type of joint is this? Yeah, you know. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Alamo Hour. You are all what make this city so great. We hope you join us next week. In the meantime, subscribe to our podcast. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash alamohour or our website, alamohour.com. Until next time, Viva San Antonio!